Good morning, Trinity Church. Good to be with you all again this morning. My name is Eric Tonis, as Todd said, and I am delighted to be able to open the word with you again. I've grown to love this church through the years, and it's a special place in my heart, and I love being here. Well, this series on what love is is so important, and there's no better place to go than the Bible, and in particular, the Gospel of John. You want to talk about an overused term and a variously defined term, love. You know, Tina Turner said, what's love got to do with it, right? Uh, I don't know if you ever played the game at wedding receptions, but uh, sometimes I, at wedding, I've been to a lot of weddings, boy, and, um, and at, when you work with college students, that tends to happen, but have you ever played the game at wedding receptions where you try to come up with songs that have the word love in it? You could do it for weeks. It, it's just a word that is used so widely, and it can be really confusing, and it's one of those words, kind of like the word awesome, that it gets used so much it can even lose its meaning. It can not even mean anything, and when God's awesome and pizza's awesome, what in the world does awesome mean, right? And, and when love means so many different things, what does it mean to really... Love. What does it mean to know a God who says he is love? What does it mean to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is all about God's love for us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Well, when we gather like this, we're gathering to understand true discipleship better. We want to be disciples of Jesus. We want to understand what it means to truly be people who've been transformed by Jesus and are living for him at the core of our lives. Wouldn't it have been amazing to be one of Jesus' disciples? Well, we are his disciples. His apostles, this amazing motley crew he chose, man, when you look at who Jesus chose to be his primary followers among those 12, you kind of think you should have signed him up for a strategic management seminar or something, because he seemed to not know what he was doing. He put the least likely people together. He put tax collectors and zealots together. He, he put a bunch of people you'd never put together unless you believed in the transforming power of the gospel and the work of the Spirit. One of the things I love about the Bible is it doesn't mince words. One of the things I love about Jesus is when he calls you to follow him there's no fine print. There's no really fast talking at the end of the commercial, and you can understand what all the side effects are. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus is a straight shooter. He tells you exactly what you're getting into. He basically says, follow me, and that means come and die. Die to self and live in Christ. He didn't mince words. He, he doesn't... Uh, play a bait and switch on us or some sort of shell game. Isn't that good to know in a market-driven society that God is shooting straight with us? And so let's just think about how Jesus' 12 apostles died. The biblical history and church history tells us that Peter was crucified upside down at his own request. He didn't think he was worthy, church history tells us, to die the same way his Savior did. The Apostle Paul was beheaded. The Apostle Andrew was crucified as well. 
The apostle Thomas was pierced through his spears by four soldiers. Philip was cruelly put to death, we're told. Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew met his death as a martyr for the gospel. James was stoned and then clubbed to death. Simon the Zealot was killed after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. Matthias was killed by burning for his faith in Christ. The only one of the 12 apostles who didn't die for his, his faith in Jesus was the apostle John who lived in exile on the Isle of Patmos. But we were told by church history that at one point he was tortured by being cast into boiling oil while he was in Rome. Who wants to be a follower of Jesus? It is amazing when you think about what people think it means to be a Christian these days, and then you hear how the lives of all 12 apostles went. If you're a Christian here this morning, do you realize what you signed up for? I am so concerned that in the American church in particular, with so much of this prosperity gospel that's taken hold and was birthed out of the American church and spread around the world to its detriment, that we give an idea of the Christian faith is when you come to Jesus, everything gets easy. When you come to Jesus, prosperity and health and wealth come your way and, and blessing comes your way. Now, blessing comes your way when you come to Jesus. But I want to shoot straight with you the way the Bible does. When you come to Christ, when you're a true follower of Jesus, in many ways, in many fundamental ways, your life is going to get much harder. All of creation is groaning, the Bible tells us. And do you know in Romans 8, it indicates that those who follow Jesus, who have the spirit of God living in them, they groan more deeply than those who don't belong to God. In some ways, in fundamental ways, being a Christian means your life gets much harder. This was true in the ancient church, and it's still true today. Today... In this world, every month, listen to this, every month, on average, 345 Christians are killed for their faith-related reasons. They die for their faith in Jesus every month of the year. Every month, 105 churches and Christian buildings are burned or attacked. Every month, 219 Christians are detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned. Newsweek magazine said recently that the persecution and genocide of Christians across the world is worse today than at any time in human history. Those believers around the world are being persecuted intensely. And it's, it's amazing how even though in our society it seems to be getting harder to be a Christian given the general perspectives of what Christians are, but there is real persecution going on every day in intense ways. And we've got to recognize what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. We are one body, and if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. 
There are suffering brothers and sisters around the world dying and being persecuted for their faith in Jesus, and we need to feel that pain with them. We need to identify with persecuted Christians. It's amazing how many issues in society will fill the headlines and get into our conversations and our minds, but the plight of Christians around the world needs to be something we're aware of, we're praying for, and concerned about. And it's not just around the world. I heard somebody say recently, this is so true, when I was young, being a good Christian could actually get you a job. Today, being a good Christian could easily cost you your job. It's just amazing how just in my lifetime, my very brief lifetime, how, how much things have changed. It's just astounding. A cardinal, Francis George, this Roman Catholic cardinal, said this, I expect to die in my bed. My successor, however, he, th- he thought, will die in prison for his faith. And his successor will die a martyr in the public square. And his successor will pick up the shards of a ruined society and slowly help rebuild civilization as the church has done so often in human history. We are people who need to realize that persecution is part of the Christian life. I don't want to just leave it in statistics. I want you to see this photograph of Leah Shabiru, who is from Nigeria. This young lady in 2018, along with 108 of her classmates at a Christian school, were abducted by Boko Haram. And they were told to renounce their faith in Jesus. And they did, except for Leah. She's still being held in captivity four years later. Because she wouldn't renounce her faith in Jesus. These aren't just statistics. These are real brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering for their faith in Jesus. And we've got to realize that Jesus told us this is what it would be like. Would you open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 15. We will hear from Jesus the truth of what it means to be a follower of him. As Jesus tells us about our relationship with the world. John 15, we'll start at verse 18. Let's pray. Lord, help us now as we go to your word to hear this hard message from you. Thank you that like a good doctor, you tell us the truth. Like a good doctor, you tell us the truth so we can go to the solution and not just temporary fixes. So Lord, help us now to be sobered by and convicted by and encouraged by and blessed by your word. This morning we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John 15, 18. Here's Jesus. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. 
A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus tells us the truth. No fine print here. Jesus tells us what it means to be in relationship with him as one of his disciples. And the first thing he tells us is that the world hates him. Now, at this point, it's really important to define this word world. And by the way, when we study the Bible, it's very important to realize that words can mean significantly different things depending on how they're being used. That's why we say in interpretation of the Bible, context is king. So, for instance, the Bible says that we shouldn't, shouldn't be angry. But then the Bible says, be angry and don't sin. So there are different kinds of anger depending on the context, right? The Bible says that it can be sinful to be fearful. But the Bible commands us to fear the Lord. And so it all depends on the context. So this word that's translated world here is very important to understand from a biblical perspective in its context because, after all, the Bible says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. But it says in 1 John, don't love the world. Well, so it all depends what we mean by this word cosmos, translated world. This word cosmos, translated world, it could mean just the world. Generally, that world that God loves with all its beauty and grandeur and, and God declaring revelation and the badness as well. But the world used the way it is in this passage, in this context, doesn't just mean the world in general. It means that system that's woven into this fallen world that's in opposition to God. And so when it says that the world hated him, it's talking about this, this negative view of this world word world. And so when Jesus tells us that the world hates him, he means this, this system opposed to him that rejects him, rejects his words, rejects his works. It's this world that's in opposition to him. And so if you align yourself with Jesus, this world will be in opposition to you as well. It makes perfect sense. It's the rejection of Jesus himself, the rejection of the clearest light that God has given us in the face of Christ, the fullest revelation of God for us, to us. 
which means it brings about an awareness of our sin. You see, when God reveals himself in Christ, he reveals himself as clearly as he can. We behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so if you reject Jesus, you're rejecting God. Because Jesus is God in flesh. John Stott puts it this way. So close was his connection with God that Jesus equated a man's attitude to himself with a man's attitude to God. Thus, to know Jesus was to know God. To see him was to see God. To believe in him was to believe in God. To receive him was to receive God. And to hate him was to hate God. And to honor him is to honor God. And so we need to realize that Jesus isn't just a great religious figure. He's not just a great moral teacher. A lot of people want to reduce Jesus to that. You know, it's very seldom you meet people who's, who would ever say, I don't know if I've ever met anybody who says, I hate Jesus. I hate Jesus. Now, nobody talks that way. But what they do instead of just saying that is redefine him, is change who he is so that he can fit into their lives as they want it to be. Nobody, I, I don't, just don't run into people who say, I, I despise that guy, Jesus. Everybody wants to be like the Doobie Brothers, you know? Jesus is just all right with me. You know that Doobie Brothers song? They, they kind of want to be cool with Jesus. Who, do, who doesn't want to be cool with Jesus? But what often happens is a redefinition of Jesus so that we recreate him in the image we want him to be rather than Jesus transforming us to be conformed to his likeness so that we actually then reflect the image of God he created us to be in the first place. And so the world hates Jesus, which means it hates God. You know, people think that it's just terrible that we Christians believe that Jesus is the only way to God. It's called the exclusivity of Christ, that, that no other way will get you into a relationship with God, get you to a place of forgiveness. But if Jesus is God, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? If Jesus is just a great moral teacher, I understand why people be offended because there are a lot of great moral teachers. But Jesus is so much more than his teaching. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. He himself said that about himself, which makes sense because he is the image of the invisible God. All the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. And if Jesus is God to reject Jesus, is to reject God himself. And so the world hates Jesus, and by extension, hates God. The second thing Jesus is telling us here is the world hates true followers of Jesus. The world doesn't hate people who redefine what it means to follow Jesus so it fits well with our contemporary sensibilities, but it hates true followers of Jesus who preach what I was just saying. And I must tell you, as I was preparing this message to bring this morning, I was once again convicted, as I have been every time I've read this passage, because I was thinking about how relatively little in my life I've been hated for my faith in Jesus. 
It just hasn't been a common thing. Some of it's the culture that I've lived in my whole life that's been pretty positive toward Christianity and Christians in general, although that's changing. And I've, I've experienced some pretty harsh things because of my Christian faith, going to big state university like I did and playing football for 16 years like I did with some pretty rough characters and working construction and who would make fun of me for my faith and try to get me to do some of the things they were doing with quite a lot of pressure. But, but generally, there's a pretty positive approach to the Christian faith. And so we need to realize that we've got to be ready for persecution when it comes. I'm looking at some young people out there, and, and I want you to know this message is for you even more than the, the gray heads like myself here this morning. You know, I'm going to be dead and gone, and, and you young people, I am convinced, are going to be experiencing a kind of opposition to you and your Christian faith in this society that I've never seen anything close to. I'm convinced that day's coming. And so when we gather here, it's not just to get some sort of superficial encouragement. It's to get you ready for serious persecution. Now, it's amazing how we will turn um, pretty mild things into persecution. Like, my life, it, the worst it's usually been is a coworker rolling his eyes at me because of my Christian morality, right? Which quite frankly, it's not a big deal if your coworker rolls his eyes at you or your friends think you're absolutely crazy for not having premarital sex. My friends in college are like, what? They, they thought I was from another planet. And then I was getting married right after college, and they would say, why are you getting married so young? And they'd go, oh, that's right. <laughs> I understand, right? That, that's what they'd say. But... but yeah, but just, just, it's not fundamentally about our morality even, which is what they'll want to make at all time. It's about Jesus, and he is our life. And so the world will hate followers of Jesus. Now, what I want you to realize is that what we're reading here this morning completely connects with everything that's come before this in chapter 15, this vine and the branches, that living in Jesus, the true vine, the only one in whom we are able to find life and bear fruit. And all that that produces in what you've heard before this morning's message is what leads to the people that the world hates. So those who are true disciples of Jesus will be hated by the world in part because will be supremely hated largely because of the intimacy we have with Jesus, of the love and the obedience and the fruitfulness depicted in the previous passage, in these preceding verses. We'll become like Jesus, and there's something in the world that hates Jesus in us. Now, what's very important here is to distinguish between being hated for Christ's sake and being hated because you're a jerk. There's a really big difference. And I've seen a lot in my life Christians who act like jerks who then chalk up their persecution to Jesus. So let's not give ourselves permission to be jerks 
and call it Christian persecution. So let's distinguish that first. But we also need to have a category for people opposing us, not because of anything we've done, but because they see Christ in you. Have you ever had any? I've had this experience so many times where people who know me, and, and I don't even say anything, but they say, why are you judging me? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not ju- I didn't say anything. What are you talking about? You're, you're Christians, you're so judgmental. And it's like, I didn't say a word. What are, I'm just standing here. What, what are you talking about, right? But have you ever had that experience where simply, I believe the presence of Christ through the Spirit's presence in our lives is a convicting reality for people? I don't need to do or say anything. Have you ever had that experience? Why are you so judgmental? I, I'm not judgmental. Why, why, why do you hate people like me? I don't. I, what are you talking about? I, I love you. I, what do you say? No, you're, you're, so, look, you're so judgmental. You're so angry. Your Christian is so angry. I'm, I'm really not. Actually, you're making me angry by saying I'm angry. <laughs> but, but don't think that's actually what you're talking about, right? You're just ticking me off, right? Because you're saying things that aren't true, right? But that can easily happen. But we need to realize that Christ in us will be something God hates. Now, why? Did you notice what Jesus says here? He says, the world hated me, and it's going to hate you because you're not of the world. I've set you apart. You're holy ones. And so the world's going to hate you. Then it'll find all kinds of reasons to do it. But the bottom line is, a servant's not greater than his master. Now, Jesus says this previously, doesn't he? In John chapter 13, when he washes his disciples' feet, and he says, I want you to follow my example because a servant's not above his teacher. So if the the, the teacher washes feet, well, the servant does too. But now he's applying the same idea to persecution and saying the teacher is persecuted, so of course the servant will be. It's part of the deal. We, We know that's how it's going here, right? And you'll be persecuted on account of my name. That's why. We've been called out of the world. We now lives, live lives in, by, and for Jesus, for his name. We're his servants. We're not above him. And the reason the world hates him and those who follow him truly, Jesus tells us, is because he exposes their sin. One of the great, gracious acts of God, and as the Spirit works, this is so true, is conviction of sin. Jesus exposes their sin. That's what he's saying. There's a worldly hatred of exposure of our sin, and then a denial of the necessary solution to that sin. Verses 22 and 24 lay this out, right? If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates the Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. He's not saying they weren't guilty in their sin. He's saying that his coming, God's revelation, ultimately through Christ, is what shows us our sin. Otherwise, we would walk around blithely ignorant of it. But the very presence of God in Christ exposes our sin. But glory to God provides a solution as well. And if there's something in you here this morning that resists and opposes Jesus because you don't like how it makes you feel because it puts a searchlight on your sin, 
God said that's how it would be, but what I want you to know is that's not the end of the story. Jesus doesn't just expose our sin. He covers it. He provides a remedy for it. The guilt and shame we may feel because of the sin in our hearts, our rebellion toward God, is not the end of the story. God comes in grace and mercy and forgiveness and love and offers a solution. But if you're not willing to look at your exposed sin for what it is, you'll never go to the solution. You'll get to go to temporary band-aids for a deep spiritual cancer we're all born with. Jesus provides the solution we all desperately need. But we hate being exposed. We'll do anything to cover up, just like Adam and Eve in the garden pitifully tried to come up with their own solutions to their nakedness. But God provides the solution that truly covers. Look at John 3.19, right in the beginning of this gospel. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. You know, it, it's, it's so unfashionable to even use a word like evil until we see evil. And then we start groping for words to describe what we just saw on our computer screen. But don't think this persecution is defeat. Look at verse 25. This is wonderful. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. In other words, God's purposes will prevail, and God's purposes include this opposition to him. None of the hatred we see in the world toward Jesus and his followers should ever be thought of as somehow jeopardizing God's redemptive purposes and plan. Even the hateful rejection of Jesus ends up serving to fulfill what was written in the law. As Jesus quotes the Old Testament here. You know, now, the passage takes an interesting turn. Some people think, well, that's, that got stuck in there somehow because he keeps talking about falling away and the challenges that come. But then he inserts these two verses, 26 and 27, and you think, what is going on here? He says, but when the helper, the, the parakletos, the paraclete, when he comes along, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So we move from the reality of being hated by the world because we truly follow Jesus, but he says there's going to be a comforter, someone who comes alongside, who steps into the role I've been playing in your lives for the past 33 years, Jesus says, and he's called the comforter, and the Spirit's going to come. And Jesus even says in John 16 that it's to your advantage that I, send the, that I leave and send the Spirit. It's better that way. And so we see this beautiful Trinitarian, great name for this church. How could you have a better name than Trinity? Here it is. The Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit, and they beautifully work together to make us new creatures in Christ and enable us to live courageously and boldly and lovingly in a world that despises us. And it's in that love and boldness we're able to Advance the gospel in this world. 
And the Spirit comes that Jesus talks about and bears witness about Jesus and enables us to bear witness about Jesus too as his primary means of advancing the gospel. It's glorious. Isn't it amazing that Jesus says, now go make disciples of all nations. Preach the gospel and make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's the Trinity again. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. But then he says, but don't you move a muscle to do that until the Spirit comes in power. It'll be useless. And then he comes on the day of Pentecost in power like he had never come before and indwells his believers and enables us to serve and love even in the midst of a hostile world in a way that makes people stand up and notice and trust Christ. The Spirit comes, and even in our persecuted, opposed state, we're able to rejoice in our identification with Jesus. Listen to Luke chapter 6. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Rejoice when you're persecuted. The Spirit enables us to rejoice even in the midst of persecution. Two, the Spirit enables us to love Jesus more than anything else. Listen to Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And like Paul says to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What is Jesus talking about? Hate his, uh, hate his own mother and brothers. You'll be delivered even by your parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated for my name's sake. Your own family members. Now, probably most of us here have never been rejected and hated by our family for our faith in Christ. Maybe some of you have. But you need to know throughout the history of the church, that was not an uncommon thing. Look at this photograph of my wife and me and a, and a few of our friends from our church when we went to India. Uh, this photograph is, is a picture of... Uh, there's my wife and me in the back, and then the missionary to my left there, Sheila Massey, who was working with women in India, and then uh, our friends over, the, the other two white people over there. Um, but what I want you to know is, see the man in the striped red tie and his wife, uh, second from your right there. That's, that's a husband and wife. Do you see the young lady in the middle we met her when we were there. I'll never forget meeting her because just a year before this photograph was taken, she trusted Jesus in saving faith. And when she did, actually her Hindu family was fine with it. They were. But when she was baptized, when she publicly declared her faith in Christ through this ceremony, that's when a lot of Hindu folks say, that's it. You're not our daughter anymore. And they disowned her the day of her baptism. Can you imagine how we would look at baptism differently if we knew that when you're baptized, you say goodbye to your earthly family? 
But, but there, so this couple who lead this young lady to Christ know that they don't just have a new member of their church and a new baptized convert in their church. They know when they lead a young lady to Christ, they are now going to be her parents and take over for that earthly family. Do you see how different? See, this is what Jesus is talking about. This is what believers throughout the centuries have experienced. It's almost as if you hate your earthly family because you so love Jesus. He doesn't mean hate your family, but he's saying, relatively speaking, your devotion to me, your love for me, needs to so supersede your love for your earthly family that you're willing to say goodbye to them for following me. And this, this is as serious as it can get. And so we are able to stand up to persecution in ways we otherwise never could because the spirits come in power. And so we look at these examples of these people and we take comfort. One of the main reasons we come to church, here's my prayer for Trinity. Here's my prayer for this church. That the reason you're a Christian would be so solid biblically that when persecution really comes, you won't lose anybody here. When it's no longer easy to be a Christian or convenient to be a Christian, when it's actually intensely hard to be a Christian, that won't catch you off guard. You'll be disciples of Jesus who weren't in it because it was easy or convenient in the first place. You're willing to stand up to whatever the world brings our way. And here's the amazing final point. The Spirit of God comes and he enables us to even love our enemies. Listen to Matthew 5. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. We're the people who even when we're hated, don't hate in return. We're the people who follow a savior who said about the people crucifying him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And it's in that ability to love even those who hate us that I believe God is going to be advancing the gospel in unprecedented days in our time. I just want to close this morning with, with a little story of my great uncle Mike Kerlack. This is a photograph of my Uncle Mike here, my great Uncle Mike. I just want to close reading a little portion of his journals that I was blessed to be able to have. It's my Uncle Mike. I heard someone preach the gospel to me from a Salvation Army preacher. And I prayed, God, if there's any power in the blood of Jesus that was shed for my sins, let it be applied to my heart right now. I had never heard a prayer before like that. In fact, I had never been in a Protestant church or talked with Christians except for the man who gave me a tract and preached the gospel to me. And I uttered that simple prayer, and the burden of sin was lifted, and I knew I had been saved. I said nothing at home at first. But of course, eventually my father found out. He became extremely angry and wanted me to know that he did not approve of my being what he called a salvationist. He ordered me to abandon my new religion and return to the, the church of my youth. And I told him I could never do that. He ordered me out of the home. 
I found other quarters where I could live, but occasionally I would steal home when I thought my father was working. Twice my father caught me at home. Once he grabbed a butcher knife to stab me, but my brother-in-law standing behind him caught his arm. And while my father turned to see who had interfered, I slipped out the door. Another time he tried to choke me to death, but God interfered miraculously at the time. Finally, I left for Nyack, New York to prepare for missionary work. For the Lord had revealed to me that I was to serve him in Africa. Just before sailing for France and then on to Africa, I visited my father. This time he was quite calm, but of course thought it was ridiculous for me to go to a place where cannibals lived. He said he hoped they would finish the work he had meant to do. In other words, kill me. I was assigned to begin missionary work in Timbuktu. That's a real place, you know. <laughs> Reverend Willard Martin and I were the first to begin work and lives there. This was a strong Muslim city, and therefore we had a, a opposition. But eventually we prayed, and the Lord brought souls into a harvest and did emerge out of darkness, seeking the true and living God. And as we review our 45 years... On the mission field, we can only rejoice that what God has done. If we had another life to live, we would gladly give it for Africa. We found joy and peace and blessing in the service of the king. Never met my great uncle Mike. I look forward to seeing him someday in heaven. But what an example of someone who is willing to give up everything even his relationship with his father to follow Jesus, experiencing deep persecution in his own family, and spend the rest of his life on the mission field, reaching people with this gospel that had transformed his life. Why are you a Christian this morning? What do you think the Christian life is all about? Oh, it's about abundant and eternal life. It's about the most meaningful lives we could ever live. It's about freedom and forgiveness and joy and adoption and righteousness in Christ. It's about the most meaningful lives possible. But it also includes this side of heaven, suffering and persecution. But never forget that Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Heavenly Father, help us to be bold, loving, courageous, trusting disciples of Jesus, knowing that the world hates being exposed. But Lord, help us to not only be a means of exposing the sin in this world, but the messengers of the gospel of hope that offers a solution to this sin. Give us boldness. Give this church, Lord, boldness. Give it true discipleship in deeper and deeper ways every day. Lord, in the midst of whatever comes our way in our society, help us to have proportional convictions to what really matters. Help us to be gospel people. Help us to be true disciples that hold high the name of Jesus as what we live for and what we're about no matter what comes our way. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.